This week's episode is sponsored by Jagged Edge Productions and ITN Studios' Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey 2. Only in theaters, March 26th to March 28th. The suspenseful and thrilling sequel to last year's immense hit, Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey, amplifies the gore factor with ten times the number of kills to put fans both new and old at the edge of their seats. After Christopher Robin reveals their existence, Winnie the Pooh, Piglet, Tigger, and Owl land on the endangered species list as hard targets. Unwilling to hide in the shadows, the ultimate scream team embarks on a murderous rampage through the town of Ashdown to get their revenge on Christopher Robin, once and for all. So don't miss out, and mark your calendars to catch the limited engagement of Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey 2, only in theaters March 26th to March 28th. Tickets are available now. This is the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Shoot it! Stab it! Burn it! Can any human destroy it? Boils and ghouls, lock your doors and strap yourselves in. From Los Angeles, California, Bloody Disgusting presents the Boo Crew Podcast. Horror news, commentary, reviews, interviews, and more. With your hosts, Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. Well, hello there. My name is Trevor, and on behalf of myself, Lauren, and Leo, welcome to your Boo Crew Podcast Episode 400, a milestone for us because we've been doing it this long and especially for you for having the patience to put up with us for this long. I'm celebrating here in the studio by myself because I'm recording this super late and didn't want to bug everyone else. So thank you so much for listening and for all your support over the years and for coming along with us on this journey. We've been so lucky to be able to include you in these conversations with extraordinary artists from within and inspired by the horror genre. Our guest for this one fits that description so well. Award-winning filmmaker Bishel Dutta. He's got a new film out in the 22nd called It Lives Inside. It's his debut full-length feature. It's absolutely gorgeous. So much care went into the craft of this film from meticulous sound design, unforgettable score, breathtaking performances. We joined Bishel for a live Q&A following a special screening at the beautiful Los Feliz 3 Theater here in Los Angeles. We're going to take you there now where you're going to find out about his influences, the Easter eggs he put into this, the challenges of making it, and just his immaculate attention to detail and the care he put into this thing. We really think you're going to love this film. We do get into some spoilers territory near the end so if you do want to go in completely oblivious you know what to do that said episode 400 with Bishop Dutta and it lives inside is now slaying live from the Los Feliz 3 theater oh and also Lauren and I did this one ourselves because Leo was off on a secret boo crew mission enjoy go ahead scream that's all we need another victim crawls onto the gurney for a boo crew autopsy He's a very talented writer-director. He's done music videos, commercials, close to 20 short films, earning him six Best Director Awards from festivals all over the world. It Lives Inside is his debut feature. Welcome, Bishal Dutta. Woo! Thanks, guys. Thank you, everyone, for, for staying for this chat. It's very exciting. So you can watch this movie and you know that it's got such a strong reverence for the horror genre built into it. it. It's marinated in horror fandom. Can you tell us about your very first experience with a horror film and how that made you feel? Oh, man. Well, look, 
I, I loved horror films for so long. It really started for me, and I know this one's up for contention, but uh, Jaws, my grandfather was one of the only people in our small town in India who had a VCR, and he showed me Jaws when I was three, and I was just blown away. I was so scared and kind of blown away by it, and I've been obsessed with horror movies ever since. And I could go on and on about the references, but I also, I, I want to bring up, like, I think... I was 16 when the first Conjuring came out mm. and, and I got to go see that in a the theater and kids were like daring each other to go see it because they were like, it's so scary, it's rated R, you know? And, uh, you know, it was just such a great time at the movies and those kinds of experiences that I had in the theater, it just got me so excited about trying to create that same kind of communal horror experience for audiences today. Yeah, speaking on that, Sorry, did I interrupt? Oh, I was just going to ask if the horror scene in India has grown since you were a child. It's grown. There's some very interesting film. Tumbad is a very interesting one that uh, is worth seeing. I'd like to see more, though, and especially because I tried to combine the sort of ethos, I guess, of, of Indian horror, which feels a lot more mystical, a lot more spiritual, with the kind of brutality and intensity that I love about American horror cinema. What do you love about the power of storytelling through horror? Well, what's, what was really exciting, uh, certainly on this movie, but fear is such a universal language, and it felt like this movie, I wanted to be about such a specific thing, but it felt like the more specific I made it, the more universal it started to feel because of the horror genre. I think that it's such a great... Um, format, such a great genre through which to tell personal stories because it, there, there's so much sort of layering to the language of horror, you know, and, and what I love is that everything that I think like a, a prestige drama does and they're like, oh, this is so brave. I think a horror movie's done 15 years earlier, you know, and, and I think that that's the kind of thing that really drew me to the genre because it feels so much like everybody's going to get it. Is there any particular horror film or maybe a sequence in a horror film that you find crawled into your own creative DNA to this day and is something you think about while making movies? Well, if I listed off every movie I stole from, we'd be here all night. But I think for, for this movie, uh, one of the ones that I, I just couldn't get out of my head was, was Ginger Snaps. And oh, wow. Ginger Snaps yeah. is one of my favorite horror films, Canadian film. And um, I was just so struck by the way that it wove together the kind of teenage angst, I guess, with this very interesting creature feature. And then the other one was Christine, John Carpenter's Christine. So those were two movies that I just kept kind of coming back to over and over and over again. And in terms of sequences, I mean, I love kind of set pieces and protracted set pieces. And I think that, you know, I'm, I'm trying to think of what's my favorite, but I think at the same time that I was watching Jaws, I saw also Jurassic Park. And I think the T-Rex scene, that initial sort of T-Rex attack, that's where I was like, man, this is, this is everything I want to do with cinema. The ups and downs, the sound, the suspense of it all, and then the incredible payoffs. Uh, tell us about coming up with the initial concept for this one. So... My grandfather told me a ghost story that when I, when I was very young, he said when he was a young man in India, he went to a family friend's house and the family friend had, had a daughter who would carry around this mason jar and it was an empty mason jar and she would talk to it. And he said, hey, you know, like there's nothing in there. You know that, right? And she got mad at him. She opened the jar and kind of flung something out at him. Of course, nothing came out, but or did just it. crazy <laughs> stuff starts happening to my grandfather. Uh, he's hearing knocking all hours of the day and night, wow. scary stuff. And then supposedly he left a, a pack of peanuts out 
and turned around and he heard chewing and when he turned back the peanuts were gone right so my grandfather dipped he was immediately out of there he left <laughs> but you know th this was a story that was passed down and and i started to think like there's a reason these stories these sort of folklore tales there's a reason that we hear them so much there's a reason that you get told them as kids i mean certain lines from this movie about don't go to sleep with a bad feeling in your heart i was pulling really from a lot of those stories i heard growing up so i was thinking I want to bring that to a Western audience. I want to bring some of that mythology and some of that um, spooky campfire story feeling to the American cinema. Sure. This film had some amazing, strong female characters. Is it hard to write in a female voice? I think, you know, it's one of those things where I really rely on my actors. I mean, I was lucky enough on this movie to have Megan Suri, Nir Bajwa, Betty Gabriel, Mohana Krishnan's great in this movie. And I think what I find is that I end up writing um, what feels like, you know, what feels authentic and, and based on what I've heard from friends and family. And I try to weave in my experiences as well in the cultural side. But then it's really, for me, when the actors come in, that's when the script really sort of transforms. That's when the characters come to life. And I love working with the actors to imbue more truth into the story. I mean, I think it was actually Megan's idea to have the shaving scene be her kind of introduction in the film. Because originally it came much later in the script. And I think she was saying, what a, what a great way to introduce this character. And so I think for me, one of the most collaborative parts of the process is with the actors is certainly true of this movie with the incredible actresses that were part of it. How do you think that telling the story through the lens of the teenage experience empowered the story? Well, you know, what's, what's amazing about the horror genre is that for certain parts of the human experience, I feel like it's the most honest way to tell the story. I think when you're, when you're a teenager, some of these feelings do feel like you're inside of a horror movie, right? And so I felt like there was an opportunity to really privilege the teen point of view and not to talk down on it. And certainly, you know, I'm not a teenager anymore. A lot of the people watching this aren't going to be teenagers, but I wanted to treat that experience with as much kind of seriousness as possible and say, like, when I was that, that age, like, my emotions did feel that big. And so, in a way, I don't think I can tell the story in a drama, in a dramatic format, because I think the audience will feel outside of it. I felt like only in telling it as a horror movie did it start to feel like fully and a fully immersive experience. When you finished the script, was there a scene that stood out that you were so excited to film? I was so excited to film. I, I, this was my first movie, and it was, it was every day. I was like, oh my God, I'm actually doing this. You know, it was, it was really exciting. Um, some of the bigger scenes i mean there was the sequence where uh it's in the house and sam and purna have have put together the offering and the shosh comes in and attacks a nation goes through that was probably my most like that was the day i was most scared because we had a 12-hour day to shoot that whole sequence and there were so many moving parts so many stunts so much geography to kind of track and i remember being and it was, it was called scene 97 in the script and it, it was always in my head that if i could get through scene 97 i will be okay i will survive this ordeal and when we did i was like i think we did it sh like three minutes shy of hitting our final final goal and it was like hey, nothing can stop me now. It was, it was such a good feeling. <laughs> yeah. And along the way, I mean, you had some huge 
entities on your team in QC Entertainment, uh, responsible for Get Out and Us and Neon with uh, The Lodge and all their, their, their incredible roster. How early did they become part of the process and how did that elevate your process? Well, you know, uh, QC came on very early. It was actually, I had made a short film called Inferno and it got a lot of people excited. I had a lot of meetings on Inferno and one of the first ones with, was with QC and I shared with them the, the sort of basic idea. It was just one sentence. It was like, it's an Indian American teenage girl has a friend breakup and unleashes a demon, you know, and it was, it was just that. And they called back like six months later to say, did you, did you ever do anything with this? And I was like, wouldn't you know, I just wrote a draft. Uh, it's the first readable draft of this thing. And they came on board at that point. They were incredible mentors, great, uh, great creative partners. And then Neon came on board and they were so kind of fearless about it. We certainly heard from certain um, partners, potential partners, that they were afraid of the movie. They didn't know how to sell it. They didn't know what to do with it. But Neon came on board and was, they were immediately like, we get this. We're so behind this. And we just want you to make the movie you want to make. And it was, a, it was an incredible partnership with both of them through the entire process. This film had amazing props. We love props and costumes. Did you keep anything? Did you keep that book? I have a page of the book. I have a page of the book with the seven. So one, one sort of fold um, of it, which was very exciting. And who did the artwork? I mean, it was incredible. There were a lot of incredible artists that did the film. Um, one particular artist did it. Uh, he's, he's here in L.A. And he did some of those illustrations that yeah. you see in inside of the book. And it was so fun kind of developing that style with him, you know, and, and uh, we, we just kept referencing kind of this older art. But I also said, you know, you really got to get into the mindset of this, this character. What's so exciting about making a movie like this is that you're telling the story through so many different fronts. I mean, that's one example. It was like, how would this very deranged, very kind of um, demented character draw these things? What would his line weight be of the, of, the, of the pen strokes, you know, and that? And then also I have to bring up the sound design of the film. I mean, the uh, this creature for so much of the movie was like I was directing an actor just through the sound design, right? And it was like, our sound designer, Nolan McNaughton, did so much work and he had this library and we were kind of piecing together like, oh, the, the creature wouldn't stomp here. I think it would be a little slower. So it felt like I was directing a, a whole actor just through placements of the vocalizations and through the placements of, of those footsteps and whatnot. That is so cool. I mean, that's something that really stood out to me because we had first seen this movie on a laptop, right? And to be able to see it in a theater and you really get the full scope of exactly what's going on in the sound design. Even when Russ is getting thrown around in the swing set, you can hear that outside the house over to your left. And, and to hear that is terrifying. Is there anything, I mean, the process of just the meticulousness of the sound design process, how long did it take to, to nail that? We had... Uh I think not an excessive amount of time, but I attribute it to the brilliance of that team. I mean, um, we were doing it in Vancouver. Sandra Portman was our supervising sound editor. And what was so exciting about this process was, I mean, I, I try to write sound into the script and think about sound from the beginning. But on this movie, it felt like there was opportunity to use the sound to 
place the audience inside the mind of our main character, especially as she starts to she starts to become altered in her state of mind. It was like we were starting to put things all around the surround so that you as the audience would start kind of looking around like, did, did I hear that? Yeah. Did that come yeah, from yeah. there? And, and uh, that kind of possibility with sound to me is just so incredibly exciting that it is a crucial tool to get the audience invested and immersed within the point of view of the protagonist. The Boo Crew will be right back. Science has not solved all the riddles of the universe, for hidden deep within us is the touchstone of terror. Expose it and the paralysis of fright will freeze you with horror. Such is the power of Black Sunday. Black Sunday... It comes but once every hundred years. Until then, the undead demons lie entombed, waiting, waiting. But on the moment, they rise to unleash an orgy of evil. From the grave, they come seeking blood. Blood. Life. Not since Dracula stalked the earth has there been such a terrifying day and night as Black Sunday. Presented by American International Pictures. On the note of sound, I love horror films that have like a signature melody. And this one has that like four note melody the that four note keeps melody. Evol- evolving. How did you come up with that with your composer? So Wes Hughes, the composer, he and I have worked together a long time. And this is something I was very lucky on this movie. It was my first movie, but also I got to work with um, my DP and my composer who I've worked with seven, eight, nine years. And they're very close friends. So they came on board. And Wes and I talked a lot about that kind of iconic sort of Halloween, for example, has that thing. Um, We talked a lot about Nightmare on Elm Street, of course, that sort of Freddy theme that kind of comes in. And we were trying to just figure out, like, can we use this as a storytelling device? I think it really came from utility because we were like, we don't see the monster for a lot of the movie. We're running into the Jaws problem. Can we use music to kind of suggest its... its, uh, presence Mm. right and so when he came up with that four note theme it felt simple enough but felt like through the iterations we could calibrate how intense each scene seemed and we could almost kind of calibrate what the Pishash's like mood was with how those four notes sounded so really that was kind of the beginning of the process and it really filtered into the entire score because we were just thinking what are all the variations we could do with these four notes Dealing with an entity, was there any blessing of the set prior, any rituals, Honestly, like praying? I, I wish there was, because we were <laughs> shooting the movie. There was some weird stuff that happened in this movie. Day one, we're shooting that, that one of my favorite scenes where Joyce is at the, in the bathroom turning the light on and off. And uh, we were shooting that with the mirror, and we're having a great day. It's a great day one. We got a couple hours left and the mirror just shatters. And it was like, what? Like did nobody touched it. It was so strange. And we were out of commission and, uh, actually we, we ran out of time on that. And the editor asked me like, can you redo this? Like, you know, you just got kind of one take of it. Can you do it, do it one more time tomorrow? And I did. And that's everything that you see in the movie. Thankfully is that. And later on we were shooting a, a sequence outside of a school and a house across the street caught fire. 
We're like, what? Like, what is going on? And and so we had to move the location because you can't record sound with all these fire fire trucks yeah, out there, right? It's like I'm not ADRing this. So uh, very strange things. Now I wish that there had been some sort of blessing. <laughs> so I'm assuming Pashash was is a real creature taken out of the Hindu religion. It very much is. And what was so exciting about it was, I mean, I was kind of thinking, what could it have been in my grandfather's story? So that kind of led me down the rabbit hole of these very interesting mythological creatures. And Pishash kind of came, came to me because when I was researching, I was like, this is a universal monster. Like, this is something that's going to affect everyone. And what's so kind of interesting about these cultural monsters is that there's an overlap across the cultures, right? And for us, I think the Pishash is this sort of living embodiment of fear and anger and hatred. And I just love the idea. I knew I was going to do it about a teenager, and I thought, this is the perfect antagonist for our main character because if the weaker she's feeling emotionally, mentally, the stronger this thing becomes. So that was the moment it was like, it has to be this creature. Were there any scenes that were filmed that didn't make it into the final cut? There were a few scenes, yes. Um, and th- there's an interesting reason. So uh, we had Sam kind of go back to school at one point after Russ's, Russ's death. And... What was happening was they were interesting scenes. I like them a lot, but they were just taking away from what felt like the urgency and intensity of the story. It felt like once Russ uh, met his demise, uh, it felt like the audience, when we were, started screening it and I started really seeing it with an audience, it felt like we really wanted to move in a linear way towards that final battle, towards that climax. And so, in a way, structurally, the film is divided into two halves, but it's almost a very long third act that is kind of pushing us through from Russ's death onward. So it's one of the great things I learned about movie making on this movie is getting to see the movie with an audience, really getting their feedback. It's, it's absolutely invaluable. Something just occurred to me. Is that an Easter egg, the name of the school, in the Wooderson Grove Werewolves to your ginger snaps? Absolutely. <laughs> That's awesome. Absolutely. I was like, you either found the coolest school in the world. <laughs> no, seriously, there's so many homages. Uh, Russ's car, of course, is a homage to the car and Christine and, and all that. We really tried to, there was, in one of the deleted scenes, they had them dress up like uh, the two girls in the bus from the beginning of Nightmare on Elm Street 2. Oh, no They're The mean oh, girls wow. from the beginning of them. Anyways, there were so many, because, you know, part of the project for me was I grew up with these films and I love these films and it was it was very interesting to me to think about what would it have been if my family was in one of these movies so as specific and sort of um culturally as culturally specific as I wanted to be with the family I also wanted to create like a aesthetic horror world you know what I mean like they live inside of a horror movie and and the best way I knew how to do that was pull from my favorite horror movies Megan and Mohana do such exceptional work as the pillars of this film. Talk about, and I noticed this, the very unique ways that you shot them in order to make their emotional journey really visceral for us watching. Yeah, I mean, I I love close-ups, but maybe a little too much. I'm so sorry to whoever sat in the front row. Um, But, you know, how how it came to be on this movie, we were testing, we were testing lenses, and there was a very specific, uh, very unique lens that we had, a 65-millimeter anamorphic lens with a very close focus, macro lens. And so it had the field of view of a 32, but felt like a 65. And when I put it on our actors, it felt so three-dimensional and it felt so invasive. And, and in the testing, it, it kind of realized like 
this lens is going to be so much of the movie. I want to put the camera in this very sort of confrontational angle with the characters right there in their space because it felt like so much of the fear of the movie is is being watched and being seen and being under the gaze. So that's where that kind of approach came from where I was like, I want to put the camera inside their space and let the audience live there in, in this very kind of unexpected and, and uncomfortable way even. Did you primarily stick to the script or was there any improv of lines? We, we primarily stuck to the script. I mean, certainly the actors brought a lot of the, the humor to the table and uh, some of the more kind of... Um, I, I think loosely flowing scenes, certainly the um, the swing set exchange was was a little bit discovered on the day because it was it was so important that the the awkwardness feels real. And I hope people laughed because it's, you're supposed yeah. to laugh, you know, and uh, it was one of those moments where it was like, I wanted to really capture how insanely awkward those moments are. And I, I told the actors like, try things, you know, try as much as you can. And they did. And they tried a lot of interesting sort of blocking. And then when we cut the scene together, it was just, it was just so much better than what it was in the script. There's some super artful shots. I mean, the, the one where we first hear the, the, the four note score, the motif, when uh, Mohana is walking down the street in the rain and that shadow is kind of like right down the middle. It is so cool. That overhead shot. And then there's a lot of these really cool camera rolls. Right that are in the film. Do you design all those in pre-production? Is that something that you know you're gonna do going in? Yes, I mean, my process is very much about prep. And I think the reality of making, um, I, I had so many more resources on this film than I had ever had before. But still, I mean, there, there's always a limitation. I feel like with prep, you get to do so much more. So yes, I, I love having a few almost like comic book frames. And, and that's so exciting to me that you could pull these frames and the graphic nature of them that um, really sticks in the mind. And then the rolling, it's it's something I love in horror movies. And it's just this, this really great way to destabilize the audience and kind of go the first time we do the rolling really is when we leave that kind of idyllic suburb and we leave the high school and Tamira goes to the house and immediately the camera is on its side and it was like this is weird I want the audience to understand this is strange and this was such an interesting way I felt like to communicate that sure. speaking of locations is the main house is that a, a practical location I mean I noticed a lot of emphasis is put on that door that's kind of got an eye in the front and it's kind of becomes iconic to the film you're absolutely right yes it was uh, it was a practical location when we found it I was so depressed because I was like hey, we're never gonna find this house we're never gonna find a house that allows us to first of all to create a situation that feels authentic to the kind of house I grew up in and the, the decoration and the flow and I wanted the characters to move through the house a lot and so when we found that house it was like oh this is it everything was a little bit bigger than it needed to be the doorways were big enough for dollies to move through all the boring stuff you know and, and so that was really exciting and um, staging the horror sequences in the, inside that house as well as the puja party it was one of the most fun parts of the process what about finding the condemned house? So that's two locations, actually. Okay. We, we found an exterior location and completely ruined it. I don't know <laughs> how they managed to get it to look normal. People live inside that house. Oh. And uh, I, I hope they still live inside that house. But, you know, uh, the interior is actually an incredible location. It's a, it's a kind of dilapidated farm run by uh, the owner for, for filming. And it was actually featured in, in that wonderful movie called Antlers. I don't know if you guys have seen, seen that. I loved Antlers. And I remember the trailer coming out. And we're like, 
are we shooting in there tomorrow? Like, is that, that is ours? So cool. But it's a great location in Vancouver. And um, we really didn't do too much building on this movie. And it was it's a testament. I love real locations. And that house, I have to tell you, what you see on screen, it was already 80% there. It just was a house with so much atmosphere and so much eeriness kind of built into it. Through the journey of making this film and now having it starting to screen at festivals and everything else, and then we got the big release coming out on the 22nd, have you got to meet any of your filmmaker heroes? And if so, have you had an opportunity to ask them anything about their worlds and maybe one question that you ask to somebody? Oh, man. Like a top five moment for me ever. We did a private screening of the movie for Sam Raimi, and I was just, Whoa. I think I was so embarrassing. I, I think now looking back at myself, I'm like, I should have been put in timeout. It was so embarrassing because I was like, I feel like I was drooling on it. But uh, what, was, what was really wonderful about the conversation that we had afterwards is, is just the focus on character. We talked yeah. about character a lot. And I think that was a big thing for me in this movie is that one of the goals for me was to make sure that you're watching this movie and you feel like it's happening to real people. Because that's what, that's what my favorite movies have is that you feel like this could happen to me. Right? And you can only achieve that when it's happening to real people. And so when I was talking to him, a lot of the questions I was asking him about character, and weirdly enough, we talk so little about the genre of it all. We talk so much about the character that I left it feeling like, wait, I, I think I've also made a, a family movie that I'm very proud of, too. And so that was a, it was a really great moment for me. Oh, that is so cool. And there is that moment in the, by the lockers where uh, Sam and Tim are, are having that argument. It's kind of reminiscent of Drag Me to Hell, like that moment where right. Christine Brown right. decides she's not going to let Mrs. Ganoush extend that loan, right? Absolutely. And, and it's, it, it's kind of that similar thing where she accidentally like knocks, she gets mad and knocks the thing right. out of her hand and then all hell breaks loose. But we're still, we're still following her journey. We still like her. You know, we're still on her side and it's a mistake that maybe we would make ourselves. Was there part of that dip in the roller coaster? Oh my God, we were, we were calibrating that moment. I'm so glad you brought it up. We were calibrating that moment until we finished the film because we knew that you can't lose the audience right there. Our main character can't lose the audience right there, but she has to do it because, you know, that's what made her interesting to me is that she makes a wrong choice. And it's a very important part of the curse movie structure that someone does something wrong and then there's that kind of retribution and, and all that. And, and Sam and I actually, we talked about Night of the Demon, which was a big influence on him um, when he made Drag Me to Hell. It was certainly one I looked at a lot. It was sort of an uber American curse movie. But... Um, with this, yes, we were always thinking about down to how much whispering do you hear of other people inside the locker? You know, we were calibrating that down to the last day of the mix to make sure that we understood why she was doing this, that we said, you know, I don't condone this. I, I don't, I wouldn't do this now, but when I was a teenager, maybe I would have, right. right? So it was really about calibrating the experience to make sure the audience feels that discomfort which she feels. We used a lot of like low tones in this movie, things that, in a theater like this, you're feeling, you're not necessarily hearing uh, things, uh, you know, especially something at around 18 hertz is kind of the um, embodiment of fear. It's the sound of fear, if, if you will, right? So we're using a lot of those things to subtly put you in Sam's mind to feel the same kind of discomfort she is so you understand, even if you're like, I just want this to end, that's how she feels. Right, right. As we come to an end, I know we're strapped for time. Have you thought of any ideas for a sequel? 
I, you know, I would love to do a sequel and contrary to popular belief, I did not end the movie this way for a sequel. It just felt like the right ending. And I wasn't thinking about any sequels until I saw the actors perform those scenes. And afterwards I was like, I just want to keep, keep following the, the, the family, you know, yeah. the family is so compelling to me. I just want to know what they do next because it is left in a kind of open-ended setting. So I would love to do a sequel and, continue exploring the sort of origins and, and maybe trace them even back to India. We would love to see yeah, that. Yeah, it'd be amazing. I want to end on the final scene. I mean, it's it's breathtaking. We, we see all this stuff kind of go on in her face and, and Megan's such a fantastic actor with her eyes. She yeah. says so much with her eyes and then she's got that single tear that drops and then we fade to black. I never said that. I never said single tear. I just said uh, really? action. You know, she pulled it up. Like, yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah, just give me something. You know? But no, no it, we talked a lot about it. We actually talked about the end of The, the Graduate a lot uh, because that's that the, the emotional arc in that movie. You feel this sort of... Um, triumph right but then there's a moment right after the triumph and i love i love that idea of and we ended the movie like 30 seconds too late you know what i mean that that idea was interesting to me because what we're trying to say and whatever the pishash means obviously it's it's up to individual viewers but she is left with it she is left to deal with it and it was like we have this kind of idyllic ending they're eating dinner together everybody's happy she has her friend but inevitably there's going to be a moment where she's alone and i love I love like the end of Blue Velvet where there's that weird little bird, you know, there's a, it's a very kind of uh, happy, the suburbs are great kind of ending, but that bird is so fake that it leaves you with this discomfort that like underneath the everything is okay, something is wrong. And I, I really wanted to end it that way. Love it, love it. Okay, one more last question, very quick and probably dumb. What is the significance of the, of the word Qasim? What does that mean? Qasim is a promise, and I specifically put it in there. It's it's wrong. Like it's not something you're you're supposed to say, and it's a very serious thing. And my parents were always like, "You have to stop saying this. Like you have to. This is you're using it completely wrong, and uh, it's like a." blood oath essentially wow. like you can't say this so much i would say custom to like with my cousins like right. yeah we'll be back with some chocolates custom it was so so you stupid you don't know? throw around but it was <laughs> it, it going back to that it was one of the first things i wrote and i was like i think this is not correct but it's authentic you know yeah yeah all right, everybody. Well, tell all your friends that they can experience this movie September 22nd. Thank you all for being here. Thank you, Michelle. You're a genius, man. Thank, Thank you, you, guys. I really appreciate you being here. This was a lovely, lovely conversation. Hey, there you are. That was the Boot Crew Podcast, episode 400. Thank you so much to our guest, Bishop Dutta. The time of release, his debut feature film, It Lives Inside, is in theaters September 22nd. Production tracks provided by Power Man 5000. Till next time, it is the Boot Crew saying sweet screams. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at TalesFromTheBoo. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP Part of the Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Bye. The Bloody Disgusting Podcast Network. Home of the Boo Crew. For horror-centric interviews. SCP archives. Weekly full cast storytelling. Horror queers. Genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective. And creepy. For disturbing and terrifying creepypastas.
listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.